This podcast is brought to you by Mae McCarthy, the author of a new book entitled The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step success system to create a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743, where May and Greg speak about gratitude in a new way, using a practical system that you can put to use every day to achieve success in your relationships, career, finance, health, personal pursuits, spiritual growth, and virtually any other aspect of your life. May's method is built upon starting each day with a grateful heart, and the details of her seven-step practice for success are very powerful. Everyone is a success, but you can be more successful if you listen to and apply the practices and principles that May speaks about in this podcast and in her new book, The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step system for creating a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743 with author May McCarthy about her new book, The Gratitude Formula. You can learn more about May, retreats, workshops, videos, and consulting services by visiting www.maymccarthy.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And for all my listeners, uh, we are on the phone today with author Rich Carlgard. And Rich has a new book out called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Pleasure to be here with you, Greg. Well, I appreciate having you on the line and speaking with our listeners. And I'm going to let the listeners know just a tad bit about you. Rich is the publisher of Forbes magazine and is based it, and he is based in Silicon Valley. Uh, he's a renowned lecturer, a pilot, and author of four other books. Uh, those books you can find at Amazon. Uh, it's The Soft Edge, Team Genius, the only business writing book, which Laura Brown wrote the book, and he wrote the the uh, beginning of that book, and now Late Bloomers, which we're going to be speaking about. So, Rich, <clears throat> this book is really all about the late bloomers, and you start off the book with an example of an early bloomer by the name of Joanna Lair. I didn't know who he was, and you mention um, that you know, through the accolades and the mastery of many skills that this young man had, he becomes this wonder kind. Um, what is the fascination in our world, as far as you're concerned, about people like Joanna? And why do you, why do we put them on a pedestal? Yes, um, that's a great question. I think that America has always loved the early bloomer, the prodigy. We've always thought of ourselves as a youthful nation, but of course the demographic truth is that we're no longer a youthful nation compared to most other countries in the world. Maybe Western Europe and Japan would be exceptions. They're older than the U.S. median population, but we still have this infatuation with youthful success, youthful prodigies, as opposed to people who maybe took a slower path. In the in Jonah Lair was one of these people who was destined for early success. He tested really well. He got great grades. He was from Los Angeles. Um, he went to an Ivy League school. He majored in some really tough scientific majors. He could write. Um, he became a writer for the New Yorker uh, magazine. He wrote some very acclaimed and best-selling books all before the age of 25. And then it all came crashing down as it was learned that he just made up quotes 
in his book, he famously made up a a Bob Dylan quote. And if you're going to make up quotes, please don't make up a Bob Dylan quote because there are millions of Dylan fans out there who are waiting to catch you. And I thought it was an a uh, a warning that if you get onto this early success track, that it may be hard to get off. It may take you to a bad place because you so believe in your early prowess and you and society is cheering you all the way uh, that you that you um, that you get yourself into a position where you're gonna where you're gonna crash. And we see this uh, we see this in Silicon Valley all the time. So I wanted to celebrate the other side of the equation, which is people who don't get off to the fast start in life who maybe didn't get good grades, maybe didn't get great test scores, didn't go to elite college or maybe a college at all, and found their own path of success that was more genuine to who they really were, that really tapped into their God-given gifts, their sense of mission, and people who felt pulled towards some destiny, as opposed to those early bloomers, many of them, perhaps the majority of them, who, who felt pushed. Right now, not all not all early bloomers are like that. I don't want to, you know, I, I I'm I applaud early bloomers, especially ones that are following their own destiny. But what I wrote about in the book, in the first part of the book, before I got into some of the answers, was the danger of being pushed, 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 pushed by other people's expectations. Eventually, it's going to back you into a corner, and you're going to have anxiety and depression, and might even self sabotage. Or you're going to succeed while being pushed and you're going to be up on a pedestal and the whole crowd is cheering you to get to the next highest pedestal as they were for Jonah Lair. And then it all um, comes crashing down. This is, I believe, what happened to Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, yeah, the woman well, whom everyone knows about right now. She was an early prodigy and she mm -hmm. fell into her early, early myth about herself that she was born to this great destiny. And of course, when things didn't work out at Theranos, she began to fudge and lie, and she got herself into deeper and deeper problems. And by the end of the day, Theranos was a criminal enterprise. I really don't think she started out that way, but she was trapped by her early blooming myth. Well, there is something to be said for late bloomers, definitely. I would be one of those. But you know, as you said, you mentioned in the book that young teens and young adults are under severe pressure to perform and make good. You know, it's a ADD, ADHD, psychological issues. Uh, they're on medications for this. And we've turned. Yes, and, and may say. I insert just, just a, a thought here? Because it's really frightening, Greg. You bring up this great point. And that is, think about this. In uh, uh, ADHD or ADD, whichever uh, you want to choose, attention deficit disorder, is kind of a new diagnosis. And Americans have gone for this more than any other country, but even worse, 95% of the prescription drugs given to children for so-called ADHD or ADD are in the United States. I mean, it's insane that basically a kid who can't sit still in school is somehow diagnosed as being, you know, having a, a clinical disease and is given a drug. When in fact, many of these kids are just simply not ready for school. Yeah. And it's causing uh, 
lots of problems. And there is a cost to the children and society for having incredible pressures like this to perform. Um, Huge cost. Anxiety and depression are going way up. You think about somebody gets into Stanford today. I mean, that would be a mark of early achievement, right? They only three percent of applicants are admitted. Well, do you know that 50 percent more or slightly more, more than half of the kids at Stanford today are seeing are getting psychological counseling? I mean, that shouldn't that shouldn't be the fruit of victory, should it? No, no. Um, Actually, there's a gentleman there that was on our show that teaches a course called Designing Your Life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dave Evans. Uh, Bill Burnett, Bill, oh, Bill and his part, yeah, the yeah. wonderful guys, yeah, uh, wonderful, and, wonderful book, wonderful man. Yeah, he's a wonderful man, and he says the class is constantly loaded because these kids come in and they don't know what the heck they want to do. They're there because of the pressures of their parents. Um, yep. And designing your life is a is a wonderful way for them to at least get a trajectory and some track and some traction regarding that. Um, yep. So you're right. It's really an opportunity for somebody like Bill and Dave Evans, which I think Dave actually gave you a quote in your book. Um, so you cite lots of examples of late bloomers in the book. You have Morgan Friedman, Tom Seibel, uh, Dave Dunfield from PeopleSoft, who was 61 at the time. You cite well, that- he, he started PeopleSoft at 46, and then he started- Workday at 64, mm-hmm. and um, he's still—he's not the CEO anymore, but he's still um, involved in Workday, and he's 77 years old. Wow, wow! And uh, that's really important. I mean, there's so many wonderful late bloomers out there, from the 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 richest writer in in history, uh, J.K. Rowling, the Harry right. Potter, Potter series writer who was in her 30s and living on public assistance as a single mother and um and she only um she only discovered her true gifts in her in her 30s but particularly in silicon valley why i like dave duffield's story is that that silicon valley is kind of ground central for early achievement because there have been so many people like mark zuckerberg who started facebook when he when he was an undergrad at harvard or Sergey Brin and Larry Page started Google when they were grad students. And so the mythology is that if you're not one of those, somehow you'll never really get traction in a place, in, a, in an early achievement hotbed like Silicon Valley. And it's just simply, when you step back and look at it, it's not true. There are early achievers, middle achievers, serial bloomers like Tom Siebel. There's the whole range reflecting the whole range, of course, of, of human gifts and ingenuity. So in your estimation, how is this drive that we have for uh, achievement and success while we're young taint the national talent? And how is it stunning if, if you would uh, make a comment on this, the creativity? Oh, sure. You know, if you ask CEOs what attributes they want most in their employees, and, and these are high performing CEOs of, of leading edge companies. So they're not companies where they just want a workforce of people who are told what to do. These are, you know, this is the CEO of Genentech, the CEO of Intuit, and CEOs like that. And so Fortune magazine surveyed these kind of CEOs and asked them what they want most in their employees. And the number one answer was curiosity. Now, the flaw of this early achievement conveyor belt, as I call it, where we're putting kids 
you know, in Manhattan, uh, there are preschool preschools that charge $50,000 a year now. I had $45,000 in the book, but they've been able to ratchet up their prices since. Preschools charging parents $50,000 a year for their three and four-year-olds. And the literature of these preschools is, uh, says things like, uh, immerse your child in a multi-campus situation where they can be exposed to multiple languages, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the not so subtle message is, parents, if you fail to give your kids a head start at age three or four, then 15 years later, when they fail to get into Harvard or Princeton or MIT, you have only yourself to blame. And that's ridiculous because this conveyor belt of early success, what it's asking children to do is to forsake their natural childish curiosity and, and replace it with a determined focus. Well, you know, if you're on the early achievement conveyor belt, a determined focus is very valuable. And, but what happens is that you've now undergone this regime where all of the feedback is encouraging you to be a really good rote learner or be a learner who's really attuned to doing well on standardized tests or advanced placement courses. And by the time you get that at the end of that conveyor belt, which presumably, you know, you got into Stanford or MIT and now you're looking for a job, you don't even know how to be curious anymore. And so even Google has found that these kids from the elite schools, they do get off to a fast start at Google and they do well. But the later bloomers begin to catch up with them after about three or four years. So the advantage of going to an elite school, while it may open doors for your first job, after about the mid or late 20s, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it kind of levels out because, as you said, you've got uh, these six strengths for late bloomers. And I thought it was quite interesting. But you also say that we live in a society in which the highest IQ people earn the greatest financial rewards. So you tell a story about your interviews with Bill Gates in the 90s. How daunting was, uh, or how damaging was this attitude and cultural movement around creating highly intelligent grads, which you've just been talking about? Um, well, I thought the I part think- about Gates was really, really interesting. And evidently, you, you followed him for a while and did lots of interviews. Yeah, the Bill Gates today, of course, is an esteemed global philanthropist. Um, of course, I interviewed him when he was in the peak of his powers as CEO of Microsoft, and Microsoft is on its way to becoming the most valuable company in the world, and Gates the richest person in the world. And he was a different person then. He was he was um, he was super aggressive, super bright, not just bright in software, but across the whole range of Microsoft's business, from marketing to finance to law to HR. He just he could go broad. He could go deep. He had a wonderful sarcastic humor. Um, off the record, he could be profane in a funny way, not putting people down, but in a sarcastic way. I I really enjoyed my time with Bill Gates. But the one thing, you know, he believed in IQ supremacy. He constantly talked about Microsoft workforce will triumph because we have the highest IQ. In fact, he said, we will beat Oracle. We will beat all of our other competitors in software because we have the highest IQ. And even speculated that on a per employee basis that Microsoft's only competitor for IQ per employee was an investment bank, Goldman Sachs. Now think about that. He was 
you know, in many ways he was onto something, but he created a template that, that others have followed. If you think about the two most lucrative parts of the American economy where you can get, you can make a lot of money and, and get really rich the fastest over the last 20 years through recessions, through booms, through busts, through high stock markets, low stock markets, they've been in two fields. They've been in Silicon Valley kinds of technology and they've been in high finance. In other words, investment banks, hedge funds, companies like that. Now, if you look at these Silicon Valley kinds of companies and Silicon Valley venture capital and the whole infrastructure that supports these high growth tech companies, and then you look at the hedge funds and, and the big investment banks, who do they re recruit for? They recruit for people from elite schools. They recruit moreover for people with STEM degrees from elite schools. And one of the markers that they look at is your math SAT. Jeff Bezos used to interview, when Amazon was much smaller, used to do interviews of, of prospective executives himself. And he would ask people what they got on their math SAT. Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the same thing. What did you get on your math SAT? Now the math SAT, the perfect score is 800. And I, as I researched in my book, the SAT test was simply a practical implementation of the American version of the IQ test. The IQ test was developed in France in 1905 by Alfred Binet. It was Americanized by Louis Terman at Stanford University in 1916. And then a guy named Carl Brigham at Princeton in 1926 developed this thing called the SAT test. And it was essentially the IQ test in a more, you know, in a, presented in a different way in a, long, a longer version of it. And no, you know, no excuses were ever made for that. It's just the way it was. And so, you know, by the way, this thing, all of the early uh, IQ testers and test inventors in the United States in the early part of the 20th century were all tied up in the eugenics movement, the belief that the people with the heritage of uh, a Northern European heritage were naturally brighter than people with a middle European heritage. And God forbid those poor people who grew up close to the equator, that the browner you got, you know, yeah. and the more uh, odd vowels in your name, somehow the dumber you were. And well, nobody, no, nobody questioned this. And it, people don't realize it's still kind of embedded, embedded in there. I was somebody who went into this project of researching late bloomers as a defender of IQ tests and the SAT tests because I thought they were just part of the meritocracy. And gosh darn it, you know, America's a meritocracy. And I came out of it shaking my head. Well, there's certainly a bias, let's face it. Um, that Those bias exists and they're very hard and to they get can rid be gained, of. And they can be gained. Yes. You know, pity the poor kid who shows up for the SAT test and has never taken a practice SAT and has not had the tutoring and all that kind of stuff that now seems to be a requirement. And, and immediately that kid gives up a total of, you know, 150 or 200 points off the combined score simply because it's the first time they're taking the test. You know, right. that, does, that doesn't seem right. Well, no. And, and fortunately we are seeing some shift by all of these companies in the way in which they hire and what they look for in their hiring um, and obviously, you know, that well, it, they say, they say, Greg, they say, yeah. but I think it's like political correctness camouflage. They're they still say, not doing it. They say, that. you're, you mean to tell me Google's going to turn down a perfect SAT 
grad from MIT, you don't think that kid, you know, will, will always have an advantage? You know, I think that when you really look at the reality, let's see how it plays out. I do think there's some interesting reform ideas out there and people are jawboning the right thing, but let's see how it plays out. Well, one of the tools that you talk about in your book, and I happen to pick up interesting things as I'm doing reviews on these books, is the Myers-Briggs. And, yeah. you know, here's an instrument that's lasted so long in our society. It's a tool. It's an instrument to classify people into archetypes. Um, you still hear people talk about, you know, are they an ENFT or what are they? Why, in your estimation, is that practicing so damaging? Because it's actually putting a label on everybody, but... Yeah, that well, that's it. That's it exactly, Greg. It typecasts right. people. Right. You know, uh, the the uh, Todd Rose, um, who wrote a great book called The End of Average, and then another great book called Dark Horse. He's the center of mind and learning. At, at yeah, Harvard he's been University. on our show. He's been oh, on the another, show for you, both you've books. Got, actually, you, you've had some great people on your show. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. so honored to be a part of it. Yeah. You know, he talked about he talked about just a simple question: Are you an introvert or an extrovert? And he said. You know, in his case, and he suspects in many people's cases, it's situational. There are some people, you know, your good friends say um, that you you might be very sociable and extroverted. Those are people w that that will drive you into the corner of introversion. So it's not it's much more fluid than I think Myers Briggs captures, and that's that's why I don't like these standardized tests because they may give. I don't have any doubt that Myers-Briggs gives you a, an insight as a snapshot in time, but, um, but you know, that, that this is then going to follow, that you're going to think you're this person all the time. I've known so many people, for, for example, who are late bloomers, who discover, you know, they follow their passion and they discover they can build a business around their passion. Right. So they become an entrepreneur. They never thought of themselves as an entrepreneur. They're not a type A, hard charging person, they just simply discover they can build a business around their passion. And, uh, and, and they would have been the last person on earth to think that they would be an effective salesperson. In fact, the idea of selling something, calling people up and trying to sell something would have driven them into a, a corner of fear and anxiety. And that that's would have been that would have been their, their image of themselves based on their past behavior. But they find because they have such a sense of mission about their business that they're able to overcome that. And because they're selling from a point of mission rather than just, you know, trying to make the sale, they become really effective. You love to buy from somebody who has a true belief in their product or service. So to typecast that person, say, ah, you'll never be a salesperson, you know, you should be in the back office, I think is a real mistake. Yeah, there's so many opportunities for late bloomers and and that to start businesses, you know, you were talking about PeopleSoft and so on. But you also tell a great story about Ashley, who used to cut her wrists and run away to engage in dangerous uh, trysts with older men. Um, I was curious if you'd tell our listeners a story because um, of how this correlates to the present day mania for early bloomers. And it's on its collision course with real life um, with three major trends, as you talk about. So you have three major trends around that. I thought her story was, was fascinating and how she turned around. Sure. Thank you for that opportunity to tell the story. Well, our, our, both of our kids are adopted. And when our, um, our oldest, uh, 
a, a girl was in her mid-teens, she began to have real anger problems, just lashing out at everybody. And it became disruptive around our home. We didn't, my wife and I didn't know what to do, but finally we found a counselor. And one thing led to another, and we sent our daughter to a therapeutic boarding school an hour north of Phoenix. And the woman who founded this therapeutic boarding school, Spring Ridge Academy, is herself a late bloomer with no professional background as a psychologist or an academician. She started Spring Ridge Academy at age at age 50. And, and she realized that both for boys and girls, but, but she decided to concentrate on, on girls, that um, there are these teens who are simply, they get off the rails. They might be physically immature. They might have matured too quickly. They might have um, uh, ADHD and been treated with drugs, which of course I think, you know, might be a mistake for most. And it didn't work. One for one reason or another, they became unmanageable kids for their parents. So she developed this curriculum and, and, um, and it did wonders for our daughter. And Ashley was one of the first students at Spring Ridge Academy. And she was the girl who cut her wrists. Um, she would run away. She, you know, engage in trysts with older men, all that kind of stuff. This is Ashley at age 16. So we went to the 20th anniversary dinner of, of uh, Springer's Academy, who was also the retirement party of the founder, Jeannie Courtney, now 70 at the time. And Ashley got up and spoke. And Ashley was the most articulate, smartest speaker of the night. Now in her early 30s, she's a professional psychologist. She's a counselor. Now, you wouldn't have predicted that of Ashley at 16. And I'm sure, you know, Ashley probably, well, that she was engaged in self-destructive behavior. Ashley, some deep part of herself knew that she was off the rails. But here, you know, what if Ashley, you know, Ashley could have been written off. Ashley could have been written off as one of those troublemakers destined to have a, a crummy life. But she got the right therapy. She got the right school, fortunate for her that her parents could afford to send her there. Now she's one of the most grounded, intelligent people that you will ever meet. And I, what I love about America is that we offer the opportunity for second chances, but it's not available for everybody. And, and lately, as I screamed about in Late Bloomers, we've kind of done the opposite. We're writing out, instead of realizing that people will develop in their own time, we put them on this conveyor belt of early success. Well, you know, one of the things about late bloomers, you know, Ashley would probably be considered that. Look what happened to her in her early life. She came up and then she went back to school and she got her degrees. She's now counseling. And it's a great success story, Rich, to put in the book. But you have identified six strengths of late bloomers and curiosity you've already spoken about, compassion, creativity, resilience, insight, wisdom, all of these elements, if you would, for our listeners, because, you know, I would be considered a late bloomer, even myself. Um, well, me too. We're, 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 we're together on that one, Greg. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm 65 years old. So the reality is, is this curiosity, curiosity, I think is one of the biggest factors about putting dots together and creativity. And, and I think you've just identified some of the key factors that it takes um, frequently I look at it and I say, Hey, you know, 
inside our brains, our RAM is only holds so much, but the wisdom that's in there is incredible. If you would speak to the listeners about the strengths of late bloomers, because there is a bias in the industry when I see late bloomers out there trying to get jobs and nobody wants to hire them because they're 63 or 65 or they're whatever they are. And they say it's the hardest thing to get a job. And there is definitely very strong biases against them. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I think that uh, we, the baby boom generation, you're at the midpoint and so am I of that generation. And, and if we've, uh, if we've kept our health and we've kept our curiosity and, and we stay engaged, we have a lot to offer. Uh, and for many years, going forward. So I've become a real advocate for age diverse workforces, because I think that the people in their 60s, for example, most of them don't want to be the kind of people who have to jump on a plane at the last minute and go rescue some part of a business. I mean, that there, there are certain things that people in their 20s will do better, people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s will do better. And then there are things that people in their 60s and beyond do better. And that really has to do more with the counseling and coaching part of business. You know, we should think of careers not as up and out, but as a gentle arc. Let's just say that our willingness to give it all, you know, 60 and 70 hour weeks, to manage complex projects, to hire and fire people, all of that kind of stuff. Let's say all of us, there's probably a peak age for that. Um, some people will peak in their 40s in those range of skills, others in their 50s. But many of us say, you know, I'm, I, I, I feel like I've done that. And um, what I really want to do is contribute where I can contribute now in the highest value way. And that is bringing up people, bringing up the next generation. Man, there's such a disconnect right now between these 80 million millennials who are now pretty much integrated in the workforce. And there isn't an employer out there who says, you know, these people are really brilliant, but they're kind of odd. <laughs> you know, they need communication skills. You know, what a great thing when you compare um, somebody in their sixties who's been there, done that, can see all the traps, all the possible mistakes, but coaches the young people in a way that doesn't suppress them, doesn't, this isn't dad telling you not not to the th the things not to do, but having conversations, Socratic dialogues. Are you sure you want to go down this path in this project that you're thinking about? I think it's wonderful what you're thinking about. I think there's tremendous opportunity, but I see the following traps along the way, and let's let's just talk through some of the risk factors and the traps along the way. So we get a 360 view of this opportunity, both the opportunities and the risk. You know, who better to do that than somebody who's gone through their life doing things like that? So I think there are <clears throat> age diverse workforces turn out to be very powerful. And I think companies are, are missing that opportunity, which is why so many people in their 60s find it difficult. Well, I'm glad you're an advocate for that because just recently uh, Chip Connolly was on the show and Oh, another know. one. Yeah, he's yeah. great. Well, You've had wisdom, them all. Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder is a book about basically him going in, back into Airbnb. You know, he founded hotels and Airbnb hires him. And he's this 58-year-old guy who's working with all these 20-somethings actually doing exactly what you're talking about. 
And um, at least the owners of the company had the vision to say, hey, we need some elders in here. We need some modern elders in here. And so his he's advocating that same thing, you know, the, the yeah, diversity. And, and, and that's absolutely fantastic. And my hat is off to the founders of Airbnb because they were young prodigies, right? Right. And, right. Um, and if you look at this, you know, it, it's really interesting that Vince Cerf, who developed the TCP IP language is foundation of the internet uh, is still has a role at Google and he's now 76 or Ray Kurzweil. The futurist right. at Google is 71 years old mm-hmm. and they're still playing. They're still playing roles. Diane Green was the CEO of Google cloud through January this year at age 64. And, you know, there are so many stories that some of these, even some of these prodigal young Silicon Valley companies like Airbnb and, and, uh, and Google are waking up to the fact that there's great value by having these wise mentors around. Yeah. And it's, it's really, I, I think it's picking up some steam, you know, when you were talking about Ray and Singularity University, you, you realize Ray wants to live forever, right? Um, yeah. And he teams well, good up luck with, with that. But I yeah. Mean, well, he teams but, but, up with but, Stephen but, Kotler, and then they write a yeah. whole series of books, and Stephen's been on the show many times. But the point of this whole thing is there is a lot of value in uh, having a diversity of your workforce, and especially with the, the bell curve, looking at most of them in the, the, the 30s and 40s. But what about those people in their 50s, 60s, and maybe even later than that? And uh, I think there's huge value in that. Yeah, you know, another good a company that does that well is Specialized Bicycles in Morgan Hills, so about uh, 45 minutes south of San Jose. Uh-huh. And um, Specialized Bicycles, I mean, the they're, you know, they're one of the world's leading bicycle, high-performance road bikes, mountain bikes, you know, a tremendous company, great American success story. And Mike Sinyard is still the CEO. He founded the company in the 1970s. He's in his 70s. He's rail thin, super fit, does these long rides. But you go down to Specialized and, and you, see, uh, you see this workplace that is designed for millennials. I mean, you, you walk up to the second floor and the way to get back down to the ground level is a fire pole, <laughs> if you want. You don't right. have to take the fire pole. Right. But, um, but, you can, you, but you see these old hands, too. And one of the things that Mike Sinyard is insistent upon, which is another form of diversity, which often maps well with age diversity, is cognitive diversity. And for instance, in the design of a bicycle, he's very much a skeptic that you can get to a perfect design simply with using CAD images, 3D designs on a computer screen. That there's something about the the sensual nature of a really well-made bike that CAD can only get used so far. So he loves people who are good at clay models. Mm-hmm. Well, who teaches design and clay models today? You know, I Not mean, many. yeah. So you have these older people who are really good at clay models and you have, you've had people who've been there, done that and can, can really work together with the young people because the arc, the career arc really matters because if, you, if it's all up and out, then the senior employee on an up and out track is always going to be suspicious of the young people coming up behind them, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're a threat. But if you can say, hey, look, by common agreement here, 
you know, you have reached your peak salary, your peak responsibility, the peak number of reports, direct reports. And, but, uh, and so we've got to make room for uh, the Gen Xers and the Millennials and the Gen Zs behind you, or we're going to lose that talent. But we still value your talent. Let's negotiate what would be a proper, a proper relationship. So I think the person in their 60s and 70s has to recognize that the opportunity might not be full time. You know, it might be more of a consultative role. Right. And, you know, the employer looking at the senior employee thinking full time, I, I can understand why they're hesitant because they're thinking higher health care costs and all of that. But if, they, but if they can, you know, crack that nut and they can develop, learn what is the right mechanism to develop relationships with senior employees who still have a lot to contribute, you know, then it can be very powerful. Well, I think, Rich, you've contributed a lot to the movement of people at least being aware of this. And I, I love the first part of the tagline of the book, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. And I think that's the key. Um, if more and more people would take the time to look a lot deeper into one's bio or their their CV or their resume or take time to interview them versus just a score. Uh, hey, you scored low on the test so you don't get the job or whatever. I think the talents that lie within everybody and that's what you bring out is is so inherent that we've all got something we can contribute. And the book for that just in of itself is worth everybody reading so that they can learn about how to create diverse work environments, not be so obsessed with these scores, not look at just the Myers-Briggs score um, or some test that you're going to give somebody because you're going to place them. I really appreciate what you've done. Are there any final words you'd like to leave with our, with our listeners about late bloomers? Sure. I would say lean into the person you're becoming. It, particularly if you're in your 50s and 60s and beyond and you're frustrated about being able to get back into the workplace, don't try to recapture who you were. Lean into the person you're becoming. Now that will involve what are the skills that I once had that are transferable to a new role. But lean into the person you're becoming. As you get older, you may, you know, it's like the pitcher who comes up in baseball and they might come up being able to throw the ball 100 miles an hour and blow everybody away but the person who can throw 100 miles an hour at age 22 will find at age 32 that they can't do that with rare exception you know nolan ryan was a rare exception but most won't be able to do that without tearing up their shoulder and elbow so they have to become they have to develop a repertoire they have, to, they have to develop a repertoire of pitches, off-speed pitches, breaking balls. They have to take the sum of the learning in their life and become canny about reading the batter and what the batter thinks, you know, situational awareness. Right. All of those are skills that you develop over time. They don't go away. They get better. Mm -hmm. So we get, you know, we may, we may, to use that analogy, lose a little bit off our fastball in whatever we're doing. But we've got this amazing repertoire of gifts that uh, that are very that are very uh, market serviceable if we can figure out a way to to, to offer that to to uh, to people who are willing to pay for it. Well, and the book points that out. It's loaded with great stories for my listeners. Um, we've been 
on with Rich Carlgard, and the book is called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Uh, we'll put links to the website, which is latebloomers.com. That's latebloomers.com. That'll be in the blog. We'll also have links to other pages for social media for Rich himself. Um, please go out and uh, get a copy of the book. It's available through all of your booksellers. Um, our links will go to Amazon. Uh, Rich, a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending a little bit of time with me today to share your words of wisdom about, you know, being patient in a world that's so obsessed with just drive, 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 drive achievement. And your stories in the book are well articulated. They really tell great stories about why you would want to do this. I appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much, Greg. <laughs>